Greatest mystery ever. I'm going to be talking about secrets here in a minute. and We all have secrets that uh, we are sworn not to divulge. So I was sworn to secrecy this morning to not mention a name about on this day in 1951, there was a beautiful baby girl brought into this world who would go on to win baby the year in Terrell, Indiana, but I'm not mentioning any names. <laughs> Greatest mystery ever. Who doesn't love a great mystery? Our world is full of mysteries. Grant, don't get me in trouble. I'm already in A lot of people like mystery movies. They like mystery novels. We ask questions like, was there really a lost city of Atlantis? Who was Jack the Ripper? Who built Stonehenge and why? About the images on Easter Island, the mystery. When I was a kid, this was a big mystery. I don't, people don't talk about it so much anymore, but what about the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle? Let's, let's just clip. mysterious place terrifies human race known as the Devil's Triangle leaves ships and planes entangled everything's sort of falling off their ships have gone missing planes have gone missing decode secrets of this place where the going gets tough and the tough goes missing without a trace. On Cars 24, co-presents Earth Specials. Watch Secrets of the Bermuda Triangle. Premieres 3rd August, every Saturday, Sunday, 9 p.m. on Sony BBC. You don't hear so much about that anymore, but it was really intriguing for me as a child. A mystery is something not understood or beyond understanding. The secret or specialized practices or rituals peculiar to an occupation or a body of people, like a family. I think one of the benefits maybe is belonging to any family group or club is being able to be in on the secrets. In certain families, only family members know the ingredients that mom puts in her homemade spaghetti sauce that makes it taste so good. Or Diana's meatballs or the family recipe for permission, persimmon pudding or cookies. And if you're part of the Coles family, you get Coles cash in the mail. Who in here is in that family? Come on, girls, get them hands up. Ron's pointing at his wife. Brilliant marketing strategy, isn't it not? Man, I got $20 of Coles cash. I can't let that go to waste. I'm just saying, I don't know anybody that says that. I'm just saying, I'm just making that up this morning. <laughs> there are fraternities and sororities that have a secret password or handshake. I always thought that was interesting about those societies such as the Masons that everything's pretty much done in secret. They have secret words and on and on and on. I'm not smart enough to even remember a secret word, so that left me out of a lot of things. And as I have said often, Every family has secrets. We call them skeletons. 
I use that a lot for an analogy. And some of those skeletons that has happened in our family, we take them to the grave with us. We don't want to talk about it. We really don't, we really don't even want anybody to know them. It, it, it might make us look bad. And doesn't every family have a black sheep? He sticks out. The night before Diane and I were married, this would have been October 16, 1970, the night before our wedding, my dad set me down on the porch swing. Now, mind you, I had never heard this story before. He said, I want to tell you something about your mother who had, my mom had passed in 58. And he said that when my mom was a teenage girl in Charleston, Illinois, she ran away and got married. But both parents hunted them down and immediately had that marriage annulled. My dad had never told me that. I guess he didn't think I needed to know it. He never said anything about him and my mom's wedding. Never found a marriage certificate. Never saw any pictures. My niece, Doreen, Diane, my older sister's daughter, started searching. She really wanted to know these, this information about the genealogy. And she found that my mom and dad ran away and got married in Champaign, Urbana on January 1, 1936, at the Justice of the Peace. And I knew nothing about that. It doesn't matter. But it's the fact that it was in my family. I had a grandfather. His name was Lyman Hammond, who I revered and adored. I didn't find out later, didn't find out later in life that he liked to drink whiskey and play poker. And my grandma had a marriage inherited some Newland ground. She was a Newland. He lost that ground in a poker game. My dad was big into 4-H. I was proud of my dad. He won the state judging contest in Illinois when he was in high school. He had show hogs. Grandpa gambled those show hogs away. But my grandma was, <laughs> she was a strong lady. And when they come to get her milk cow, she met him at the barnyard gate with the shotgun and says, you're not taking my cow. They didn't get the cow. <laughs> I think all families have skeletons. And I think all families have somewhat dysfunction. I don't think there are any perfect families. So if your head's great big and you think you've got a perfect family, you just go back and dig in the past and see what you turn up. Not to share, but at least you'll know that. And all have family secrets. And we bring this into the spiritual realm, and it, it's, the same, it's the same way with those who, us, who belong to God. We have been born into this spiritual clan. We have the benefit of being in on some of the family secrets. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, Paul kind of cups his hands to his mouth and into the ears of the believers at Corinth, he reveals a mystery. It's a family secret whispered to him by the very mouth of God himself. The question is behind the greatest mystery ever. 
Before revealing this mystery, Paul answers an underlying question. He had already explained that the dead in Christ will be raised and described the nature of their resurrected bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. We talked about that last week. But what about those who are still alive on that resurrection day? Will they remain in their earthly bodies? This must have nagged at the Corinthians' minds because they didn't believe that we were going to be resurrected, and Paul was trying to build that in their minds. So Paul supplies the answer beginning in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's like caterpillars who can't fly until they have been transformed into butterflies. So we will never see heaven unless our bodies are changed. It's interesting. Bill and I had this conversation before church this morning about, about cremation, about these bodies. These bodies were only made for this earth. They, won't, they can't exist anywhere else. And that's what Paul is trying to say. You're going to go to heaven, but you're not going in that body. That, that's, the, that's the whole point behind that. Then he reveals the mystery. On the heels of this thought, Paul begins to tell the secret, the event of the rapture. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Here Paul says that what happened to the dead in Christ will happen to the living. Transformation, change. Communicator Frederick Godet clarifies this point, and I quote, it is so impossible that the pr present body should participate in the life of heaven that whether dissolved by death or not, it must be transformed, end of quote. I just showed this clip a couple weeks ago. It's from Left Behind. I don't know exactly the way it looked, but I think it's going to look something like this. Let's watch. Special effects, we get, kind of get numb to those, the likes of Spielberg and George Lucas and all these people that have made all these things for motion pictures, but it's, it's going to be like that. It's not going to come out of anything, anybody's mind. It comes out of God's mind and, and out of his word. 
In verses 52 through 57, Paul details this transformation. He talks about the rapture suddenness. It will occur in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, verse 52. Derived from the Greek word atomos, the word moment conveys the idea of something that cannot be divided, separated, or added on to. The other example he gives is the flutter of an eyelid or the flash of light reflected in someone's eye. It also expresses the extreme suddenness of the rapture in a nanosecond. It's going to be just like that. I remember another clip that Grant gave me a few years ago. Showed this church and the guy was preaching and boom, all, everybody was, a lot of people were gone. I guess the sad part about the preacher was still there, but whatever that says, but nonetheless. Here's the rapture's order. It will occur at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It's heralded by the resonant sound of the last trumpet. Dead believers will be raised first, first, then the living changed, but whether living or dead, we who believe will meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. 18 says this, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Those of us who have lost people and have had great tragedy in our life, we can comfort each other with these words that it's not going to be the end, that there, there's, something, there's something coming. We have great hope of what the future holds for us who are followers of Christ. He talks about the rapture's necessities. Paul now gives us two events that must happen before we can enjoy the presence of the Lord. Verse 53. For this perishable must, be, must put on imperishable, and this mortal must be immortal. It's like trying to mix oil with water, combining heaven with the death and decay of earth. It don't work. Not only will we be changed, verse 51 says, we must be changed. It's imperative that we be changed because these bodies won't work anywhere else but on this earth. He talks about the rapture's victory. Paul goes on to explain what will happen after the transformation, verses 54 and 55. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It has no more sting. Ever Ever since the days of Adam and Eve, death has strutted around like the proud victor. It has played no favorites. It's given no warning, no no season of the year. But after the rapture, never again will anyone grieve the loss of a loved one. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We've all lost loved ones, and if you haven't, you will. Diana had Susie Collins' funeral over Marshall yesterday, 72 years old. My nephew Todd has passed. His funeral is Wednesday in Casey, Illinois. It leaves a hole in your heart. And I'm not going to get into this this morning, but there are seven stages of grief that we go by. Paula just lost her sister, and I can look around the room and see your faces and know people that you have lost. There's seven stages of grief, and sometimes with the Holy Spirit's help, you can work through them quickly, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes you get stuck in a stage. 
Sometimes people almost through to the seventh stages, which is healing, but then they'll go back. I think a big one is, is, is anger. We get mad at God. I always tell people this. It's healthy. It's normal to be mad at God. You can stand and shake your fist at him because you're mad. He understands that. You vent. You get it out of your system. But the point is we can't stay mad. There has to be a point where we come back around and say, Lord, I'm sorry I throw this big fit, but I know you understand. You're my best friend. Never again for death's things will permanently take people from us. It'll be gone. And Paul begins to explain why in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Though sin, through sin, death gains its authority over man. By the law, sin is strengthened. God's law, the prohibition of thou shalt not. Thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. Actually, in a strange way, that gives sin power. It doesn't mean that the law is sinful, as Paul clarifies in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's point is this, that a warning often prompts a wrong. You've experienced it. You've read the sign next to a pond that says, positively no fishing. What do you do? You get this sudden, sudden hankering or urge to fish in that pond. It's like wet paint. Who in here has ever seen a said white sign white paint and you touch it to see if it's sticky? I've done that before. I learned my lesson on hot stoves. I don't touch hot stoves. But paints that way. You touch it. It's just because it says not to do it. The lure of the word don't is like saying sickum to a dog. It's like that story of that burglar thief broken a house. He was pretty sure nobody was home. So he started in the living room. Had a bag. He started putting antique clocks and all kinds of stuff in that bag. And about every two or three minutes, he would hear this voice come from the bedroom. Jesus is watching. So after the living room, he went in there in the bedroom. There sat this great big parrot on a perch that would say, Jesus is watching. He kept doing that over and over. He finally started to get under that burglar's skin as he was emptying the jewelry drawers. He went over to that parrot. He said, what kind of stupid family would name a parrot Jesus? And the parrot looked him in the eye and said, the same kind of family that name a, would name a Rottweiler Jesus, sick him, Jesus. That, that's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> you, can just, you, can just, you can just picture that in, in your mind, that happening. So it comes down to this, that, that we have been introduced to this mystery and it's like any message that you hear, any challenge that you get, we have to have a response. Sometimes we cover our ears. Sometimes we shut our spiritual heart. We don't want to hear it. But, but what is our response here this morning to the mystery? Now that we've heard the secret that Paul whispered to the Corinthians centuries ago, what are we to do? Do we find a date on our calendars and circle it? 
for the rapture? Quit our jobs, sell our possessions, go out to Miriam Bluff and wait for Christ to come? That's exactly what the Thessalonians did. That's why Paul sent them that letter. He said, hey, you guys, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. You just can't lay down or have a big party and wait. We don't know that. And I, said, I shared that last week. It, this, this is the classic example of what Paul tells them. He says, you don't work, you don't eat. Jesus told us that no one except the Father knows the season, the day, or the hour of his return. Matthew 24, 36, and verse 42, Acts 1, 6, and 7. The answer is given in Paul's final thoughts, thoughts that are meant to encourage and edify us. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? It's the fulfillment of God's will for your life. I always picture this in my mind, that when we come into the kingdom, which God already knows we're coming, he creates this big storyboard, and he's got blessings written down there if we're obedient. He, he's got the gift or the gift that he's given you. He knows what you're good at, and he expects you to use those for his glory. That is what Paul is talking about. But God's will is seldom cut and dried. It does not necessarily mean being a missionary. It doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor or even a, a Christian school teacher or a Sunday school teacher or whatever. It is something designed to fit your own unique abilities and gifts. I've always said this. We can all do something good. I think whatever we do good, we should do it for God regardless. It will fit into the context of life. But whatever it is, he wants you to be committed. He wants you to be rock-like rock, rock -like to that will. In a nutshell, Paul is saying, live each day as it were your last. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was going to come and get you in the night, my nephew died at 2.28 a.m. on Thursday morning. If you knew at 2.28 in the morning that God was going to stop your heart and you're out of here, would the rest of this day look any different to you? Would you go eat a regular lunch like you do? Would you go watch the Packers would you, tonight? Or would you do anything different? Or would you be expedient to tell people that you love that you're leaving this earth and you're going to see Christ and you want to make sure that they know the way. Do you live today, if it was the last chance you had to invest time in life's most significant things, would you call your family? Would you text them? Would you go see them? Tell them how much you love them? If there's issues in your family that needs resolved, if there's a family member that you need to apologize to, somebody that you've had a fight with, it's always a sad thing when I'm with families and there's grudges. And then they go to the funeral home and 
They stand before that casket and they're full of remorse. Oh, I should have told them I loved them. I should have told them I'm sorry. Would you spend your time as you do now if you knew that tomorrow you'd hear that last trumpet sound? The seeker's out. He is coming back and we will be raised completely sinless to spend eternity with him. And when he comes, will he find you doing his work? Will he find you exercising the gifts and the abilities that he put into your life supernaturally? Or will it look as though you've forgotten to prepare for the rapture, the greatest mystery ever told? It's like the parable of the maids and the oil and the lamps. Jesus alludes to this quite often, actually, as you read the New Testament. Jesus will come in the twinkling of an eye, a blink, it's that quick. He will come as a thief in the night, quickly, undetected, to get you an eye. Are you ready? Larry Norman, a Christian author, was around years and years ago, or a Christian singer, a Christian singer that actually stood on this stage. He had a song about that. I wish we'd all been ready, and that's the point. It's not something that you play with in your mind. It's something that you know. It's something that you know 100% of the time. It's something that you never question because you know you're in Christ, and regardless of what happens, when this day comes or he stops this heart, that you're going to be ushered into his presence. I get tired of dealing with death. I'm sure you do too, but it's in my wheelhouse. I deal with it often, but the fact is the thing that gets me through it is the hope that Christ has put in my heart that when I stand before people as they mourn and grieve to be able to express to them because of God's word, this isn't the end, it's the beginning. I wish I could explain death but once I die, I'm not going to be able to come back and tell you the way it was. It's like I said last week, I think it's like walking through that door. And I think for a while we might have feet planted in both worlds. But I don't know about you, but the older you get, the more you welcome it, actually. That might sound a little crazy, but that's the way that it is. And that's what Jesus says. Ready or not, I'm coming back. My friends, you don't need to just know about Jesus. You need to really know him. You need to have that relationship. There's no secret code to that, no secret mantra that you have to learn. There's no hoops specifically that you have to jump through. But as we go to Billy Graham's Peace with God, Steps to Peace with God, that pretty much explains it. That's how you know Jesus. It's just an honest conscious prayer in your heart that you're telling God that you admit that you're a sinner, that you need his salvation in your life, that you want him to redeem you, to set your feet upon the path 
and you, you ask and tell him, man, Lord, I'm sorry for all my sin. I want a new life in you. And in the miraculous way that the Holy Spirit works, he comes into our hearts and we're changed. And we wait for this change that we talk back about today is when he comes and gets us and takes us home. Lord, I love these people. I've often said, I wish that I could just go touch people and make them saved. <laughs> I'd be out touching people all the time. It don't work that way. And we know, Lord, that we, we rely upon you, Holy Spirit, that you come and you knock on hearts' doors. And I pray that when you do that, that people would open their door and let you in. There in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And the whole concept is, is, is uh, Jesus comes in and he hangs out with us and we form this relationship. So right now, Lord, as we close this time together, may we just be open. I say this every week because it's so important. If there's unconfessed sin and things in our life we need to get rid of, now's the time. As you have reminded us of us. And if we're here and we don't know you, Lord, that we could do What Billy Graham said to do, what I say to do is confess your sins. And if you need help and prayed with, we'll sure be welcome to do that. You're sure welcome to come up. We ask these things in your name. Amen.